Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 19 of the Dason Digest. I'm Travis Jones, a liaison clinical pharmacist with Dason, and the title of this podcast episode is Real Talk with Dason, COVID-19 Vaccines. This episode is being recorded on Thursday, August 12th, 2021, and in this episode, I'll be joined by our medical director, Dr. Schaefer Spires. I want to start this podcast by sharing a few statistics about vaccine uptake among specific groups in the United States that haven't necessarily received broad coverage and may not be known by most members of the public. Later in the podcast, we'll chat about frequently asked questions or FAQs regarding vaccine safety and efficacy. So I think we all know that the vaccines are widely available and that most Americans 12 years of age and up have had a chance to get vaccinated. In fact, at the time of recording, approximately 68% of all eligible Americans have received at least one dose of the vaccine. 59% are fully vaccinated. But which groups in the U.S. have extremely high rates of vaccination? Well, the first is doctors or physicians. In fact, 96% of physicians in the U.S. are vaccinated, according to a survey conducted by the American Medical Association in early June of 2021. And among the 4% that reported they aren't vaccinated, Roughly half said they plan to get vaccinated. Second, our leaders. Our leaders in the US have very high vaccination rates. Every single living US president and first lady is fully vaccinated, including former president Donald Trump and first lady Melania Trump. And all but two senators in the United States are vaccinated. Another fact, every single Republican and every single Democrat governor in the United States is fully vaccinated. And in addition to all of our leaders and physicians being vaccinated, many companies are requiring proof of vaccination or at least require their employees to get frequently tested for COVID-19. And this list includes many companies that many of us have or will interact with, such as Walgreens or Walmart, Walt Disney, and even Tyson Foods. I think it's not a surprise to many of us that news media outlets like CNN and MSNBC are requiring proof of vaccination for their employees but a less known fact perhaps is that Fox News began requiring proof of vaccine in early July of 2021 as well. So what about vaccinations in the general public? Well, vaccine administrations peaked in April of 2021. Approximately three and a half million doses were administered each day. While the number of vaccine administrations by day has gradually declined since then, recent trends suggest vaccine administrations are increasing gradually. And that began in the third week of July. And at the time that we're recording this podcast, 90% of U.S. adults 65 and up have received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine, and 80% are fully vaccinated. And among all adults 18 and up, 71% have received at least one dose, and 61% are fully vaccinated. And I think you've all heard and are likely seeing in real life, COVID-19-related hospitalizations are increasing, and it's difficult to understand exactly who is being hospitalized. When the COVID-19 pandemic began, age was the greatest risk factor for hospitalization and severe disease. But now that 90% of adults 65 and up have received at least one dose and are partially vaccinated, what do our new COVID-19 patients actually look like? Well, the data suggests that they're younger. And here are the facts. Prior to the availability of the COVID-19 vaccines, 18 to 49-year-olds made up just 20% of all hospitalizations. In late July, their share has increased to 42%, so over doubled, and it's rising week by week. The opposite trend can be observed among adults 65 and up. In January, they made up about 55% of COVID hospitalizations, 
and their share is now less than 30%. So they've seen about a 25% decrease. So what changed? It's simple. Older adults went out and got vaccinated, and now their risk for severe disease, hospitalization, and death is far lower. Now here's a real world example. In Florida, 92% of adults 65 and up have received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. That's higher than New York, New Jersey, Illinois, and even Washington, DC. Yet Florida has more COVID hospitalizations per capita right now than any of those states and territories. Well, how could that be? Well, only 63% of adults 18 to 64 are vaccinated compared with 75% in those other locations. So these data clearly indicate that what we're seeing is severe disease, particularly among younger unvaccinated adults. So what's the holdup? My personal belief is that younger adults struggle to make the risk benefit ratio favor COVID-19 vaccination over COVID-19 infection. And perhaps a lot of that has to do with the misperception surrounding the safety of the COVID-19 vaccine. And that's what we're here to discuss next. But before we move on, I wanna make it clear that the vaccines are very effective. Right now, 98.9% .9 of all patients hospitalized for COVID-19 are unvaccinated. 99.2% of all COVID deaths are occurring in unvaccinated adults. And as of August 4th, 0.08% of all vaccinated patients experienced a breakthrough infection, presumably from the Delta variant. That's about eight out of every 10,000 vaccinated patients. So these data suggest the vaccines are very effective particularly at preventing severe disease and hospitalization, but are they safe? So let me welcome our medical director, Dr. Schaefer Spires, to discuss COVID-19 vaccine safety. Welcome Schaefer, and thanks for joining us on this episode. Hey, thanks Travis. Uh, that is a really nice summary of the data going on with vaccines uh, right now. Actually, I was not aware of all our leaders uh, that have been vaccinated uh, like that. Uh, very helpful to understand and kind of put things in perspective, what their priorities are. Yeah, I think it was really interesting to find out about all the governors, all the, you know, prior presidents. And I also thought it was interesting to, to see the different news media organizations and how they're treating, you know, mandatory COVID vaccinations within their own institutions. No kidding. So Schaefer, I kind of want to start off with this first question. It's one that, that you and I probably both hear the most frequently. And that is COVID-19 vaccines and infertility. So we hear a lot about infertility. So along um, the lines of infertility, I think it's important to also discuss COVID-19 vaccine use in women that are pregnant and women that are breastfeeding. So what can you tell us about uh, the COVID-19 vaccine and whether or not it has any effect on infertility? Well, the, the question of infertility uh, I think in most scientists' mind never really came up. And I think it comes up for, for many lay people who don't, uh, I guess, live in the science world, I think because it's a new technology and there are words like mRNA and nanoparticle and DNA. And does that mess with my chromosomes? Oh my gosh, is that infertility? Because that's where my chromosomes come from. And and, uh, and so I, there are a few things that I want to just clarify uh, that are basic um, knowledge, I think, to a lot of people who, who just live in science. Uh, one, the mRNA vaccine, for it to go backwards in what we call reverse transcription, 
to become DNA or like a complementary DNA strain that could potentially somehow magically incorporate itself in your in your own DNA, it, it, it is actually impossible to do. And, and there's there's good reason for that. And the biggest reason is that it's a reverse transcriptase is an enzyme that can do that, take mRNA and go backwards into DNA. And literally the only thing on this earth that has that particular enzyme are retroviruses, for example, HIV. So we can't do that. So if you put an mRNA strand in you, there's no way it can actually go backwards into DNA. There's also no way that you can enter anything into the nucleus of your cells where your DNA is. And there's really not any possible way that it could do anything even close to this in your stem cells or some of these undifferentiated cells that actually are where your normal uh what am I trying to say? The actual cells that form sperm and cells that form eggs. Like there's no way anything like this could actually get in there. There, there, and so I think that that misunderstanding about RNA and DNA maybe kind of allows for some of that fear to creep in. That it could have impact our fertility or uh, you know some of our underlying DNA. And it, and it, quite frankly, it's just it's just not even. You can't even draw a logical hypothesis as to how it happened. One thing that is potentially logical, and as with a lot of myths, there is some underlying possible truth that gets, I think, taken out of perspective. And for women in infertility, one myth that I saw going around early on with the vaccines was the vaccine itself could trigger the development of, a, of an antibody that somehow uh, targeted a protein at the placental uterine membrane interface. And so it could potentially cause uh, inflammation or you know, some sort of placental attack by your own body. And now that kind of stuff does exist. I mean, that's, uh, you know, some of these autoimmune diseases, you, you find spontaneous abortions occur more uh, likely. And however, the, you know, the mRNA produces the protein that is the spike protein on this virus. And it, it really is, is very specific and very good at what it's doing. And that's, that's the whole excitement about this technology is that it can actually produce exactly the protein that you want your body to focus on and that's all it does and so that myth is really it was actually studied in in the labs and and they found that they, they, that does not exist now talking about kind of this kind of leads us into the next question about this these vaccine safety and pregnancy uh what we the data on safety and pregnancy that we have is data mostly in healthcare workers because they were the first to get vaccinated and then if you'll remember when when we all got vaccinated we entered uh, voluntarily into the v safe program where the you get these text messages every day for a week and then every week for several weeks after that to ask 
all these for you to go and enter this information on a survey. And so they just released this preliminary analysis uh, in, in June of the data from pregnant women who got uh, Pfizer and, and Moderna vaccines uh, that entered, that, that answered the questions in, in VSAFE. And there were, get this, over 35,000 pregnant women they elected to get the vaccine even though they were pregnant. And so while we don't have some of the earliest women who were pregnant that got the vaccine in their first trimester have not had their babies yet. So we don't necessarily have the information on congenital malformations. We do have information on congenital malformations on those who got the vaccine in their second and third trimester. Uh, and this preliminary analysis, basically they show the rates of some of these outcomes and compare them to the known rates of uh, some of these same outcomes in the general population and have not detected any abnormal signals, meaning spontaneous abortion, stillbirths, uh, uh, preterm delivery, like all these things are actually still all in the low uh, <clears throat> range of what is expected in the general population. So there's no clear signal that there's any risk to anyone who is pregnant to receive these vaccines. And in fact, the American College of Obstetrics uh, and Gynecology, ACOG, has actually come out with a very strong recommendation that everyone get the vaccine, including those uh, in, in, uh, who are pregnant and breastfeeding. And so, you know, quite, quite honestly, ACOG, in my experience, has been a very reasonable association when they come up with their, their guidelines and recommendations. And I, and I appreciate it. I really only interact with their guidelines when they're talking about infectious stuff like group B strep or something. And they seem to be very reasonable and, and thoughtful and, and, and I would say apolitical. They don't feel like they're catering one side. You know, I'm not talking about Republican, Democrat, but I mean, they don't feel like they're catering one side or the other. They just seem to kind of steer down the middle with the evidence. And I would say if 35,000 women in between the time period of December 14th and February 28th uh, earlier this year have already elected to get the vaccine, we have that information uh, on them. I think that's where we, we can feel safe saying, saying that it's okay to get the vaccine, even if you're pregnant. Uh, and talking about breastfeeding, typically IgG antibodies will cross the placenta and will cross into breast milk. And you know, getting vaccinated during your pregnancy, it, especially with things like the flu vaccine and pertussis, we know getting vaccinated and boosting your immune system before you have the baby is important to protecting that baby if you're breastfeeding for the next, the first six months of its life. And so uh, the same is true for COVID. Before the baby, your baby is able to start producing its own antibodies for those first six months, you are the primary source of those antibodies. So it's essentially receiving convalescent plasma, if you will, or you know the monoclonal antibody, if you're already vaccinated uh, through the breast milk uh, to, to passively protect it from COVID in those first very uh, you know, vulnerable months of its life. 
Um, and so I, th this is in my counseling of people close to me, including my sister who is pregnant, uh, we have recommended that she get uh, vaccinated. Well, thanks for sharing that, Schaefer. I, I certainly think that it's important to kind of clear up what the, the effects are of the vaccine in, in women that either are pregnant or, or would like to be pregnant. What I also think is important to highlight are the, the consequences of getting COVID-19 disease, not the vaccine, but the disease um, while, a, while a woman is pregnant. And I think the data showed that it does increase the risk for pretty serious outcomes. And here are a few examples. Women that are pregnant that develop COVID-19 have a three-fold higher risk of ICU admission, a three-fold higher risk for needing mechanical intubation, which is not a comfortable medical intervention whatsoever, and they have a 70% higher chance of death. So that's one negative outcome associated with getting COVID while pregnant. Along the lines of, of infertility, I think it's important to highlight what researchers have found regarding COVID-19 in men. In fact, COVID-19 has been shown to be associated with erectile dysfunction in men. And you have to ask yourself the question, well, how does this happen? Well, researchers that have uh, looked into this have isolated SARS-CoV-2, the actual virus, in male genitourinary anatomy months after resolution of COVID-19 symptoms. And it's believed that the virus causes widespread endothelial cell dysfunction, which can potentially contribute to ED. So while we know there aren't many concerns related to the vaccine causing infertility in men, there is certainly data suggesting that COVID-19 disease is associated with negative consequences for men. So I think that that's something that's really important to highlight as well. It's, it's not well, just a concern for women getting the vaccine, but also women getting, getting the disease and men getting the disease, because we know that it's associated with terrible outcomes. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Travis. And, you know, to remember like these, some of these organs, especially testicles and prostate, they're relatively immune protected, meaning your immune system doesn't really uh, interact there very well. And so if it, if a virus like, like COVID or SARS-CoV does get in there, like it is going to stay there for a while and, and do whatever it's going to do. And so that, that, that's an important point, I think, to bring up and will probably make a lot of men nervous who aren't vaccinated yet. No, I certainly agree. So Schaefer, earlier, I kind of shared data that, you know, we hit our peak of vaccine administrations back in April and the number of vaccines given have declined slowly. But recently, it looks like there's an uptick. And I think that could be because people are getting more and more concerned about the Delta variant because it appears to be much more infectious. But at the same time, I think that a lot of people are hearing that people that are vaccinated are getting breakthrough infections caused by the Delta variant, we believe. And we've heard that it's true that maybe even vaccinated people can spread COVID-19. So what are your thoughts about these latest revelations? Well, that, that's a good question. I'm glad you brought this up because I, I kind of feel a little disappointed in the messaging about breakthrough infections with the Delta variant. And when, when we say breakthrough infections, we mean infections in those people who have been vaccinated against COVID. Because, uh, you know, what gets highlighted, I think, in the media is, you know, that, that huge uh, outbreak happened up in Massachusetts uh, in, in July 
where they had 70% of them uh, of the cases were, were, were vaccinated. And even testing using cycle threshold, you know, which is a very rough surrogate marker for viral load. Uh, they're suggesting that these, the viral loads in vaccinated individuals for the breakthrough cases is similar to unvaccinated uh, cases. And there's another case series uh, from Singapore that also kind of follows the viral load by using cycle threshold uh, values. Um, and and what, what I'd like to do is kind of put these things in perspective because I don't feel like reading a headline in the first paragraph of a story uh, gives you the full, the full perspective. And, and sometimes it can create fear and, and mis, misunderstanding. The, the, the actual scenario in Massachusetts is this, this town, there was 60,000 visitors in these two week period in, in early July. And of those 60,000 visitors, there were 95 or more percent of them were vaccinated. There were about 700 cases. Of those 700 cases, most of them were vaccinated. And most of them, about 70% of those people did have symptoms. And so what you mean by symptoms is almost anything, felt bad, headache, sore throat. Uh, and so, you know, could have been anything. Um, and including fever, and there were four hospitalizations in vaccine, vaccinated people. And so if you think about that, what I, I don't, I think is missed is that is actually a case rate of around 1%. Uh, and so, whereas in the percent of it, individuals that were not vaccinated, the case rate is about 9%. And so that's, that's a pretty significant difference in those who are vaccinated versus those who are unvaccinated. And, and that's just in our, in that, in that particular case series in, in Massachusetts that's published in the MMWR. And the MMWR, if you read that, that brief, that, that it actually go into some of these details and, and don't try to, they don't try to make any, you know, conclusions from vaccine effectiveness just from this particular outbreak. However, the fact that the cycle threshold values, which are, again, a very rough estimate of what we believe represents a viral load, since they were similar to those who are unvaccinated, this is part of the reason why the CDC kind of came down with the, the recommendation of even vaccinated people should wear masks indoors because if you're pre-symptomatic or early symptomatic with an infection, you can have enough viral load to potentially spread it. And, and that's why we haven't taken off our masks in the hospital, because even though I may feel fine and I was exposed to COVID, I can still potentially spread it to my patients. Now, in that Singapore case series that I, I mentioned earlier, they have followed all these patients the vaccinated patients and compared their cycle threshold values daily to those who were unvaccinated. And within a, just a few days, like two or three days, the viral load drops off precipitously compared to those who are unvaccinated. So that we still think and, and really you know, know that the, your risk of transmitting COVID is much lower if you're vaccinated. 
but it's still a small potential risk. And that's where they're recommending adding that kind of second barrier precaution as far as trying to prevent spread. Schaefer, thanks for sharing that. I actually hadn't heard about that data from Singapore and how the, the viral loads, at least you know, the best way that we could measure them with the PCR cycle thresholds had declined pretty quickly in the vaccinated folks. So I think the conclusion is just because a small portion of, of vaccinated individuals are developing breakthrough infections does not mean that these vaccines at all in any way are a, a, a clinical failure. In fact, I think what it, what it highlights is that they're doing exactly what we want them to do, prevent the outcomes of interest, which are serious disease and hospitalization. Is that what you think, Schaefer? I do, Travis. And I, I you know, I think we have a we probably have a skewed uh, view of the risk of COVID because we are seeing, like I, I, I will never forget watching a 31 year old healthy male having Christmas over WhatsApp with his family, with his kids at home while he's sitting in the ICU on ECMO because of COVID pneumonia. I'll never forget the you know 55 year old healthy pastor who got COVID from being with his, his church congregation and basically also being on ECMO for over a month. And, you know, these things will haunt me for a long time. And, I, but there's, you know, what, what I think you and I and, and all of us in healthcare need to realize that there's nothing, especially in making the decision whether or not to get a vaccine is without emotion. And I think most of us experience some kind of emotion when, when we're, asked whether or not we're going to get a vaccine that's, you know, frankly, new technology. And especially when it comes to thinking about whether or not you're going to get it when you're pregnant or, or vaccinate your children. And I, I got to tell you a short story. My daughter, who's 13, she is now vaccinated, but, uh, you know, me being an infectious disease physician surrounded by people on this hall, they're leading vaccine studies, Two of my good friends are uh, vaccinologists, one of whom is actually on ACIP. And when it came down to the opportunity to vaccinate my daughter, I got nervous and honestly pushed pause. I mean, it took me two or three nights talking about it at the dinner table before I said, oh, wait, I know exactly what's in this vaccine. I can look at the rates and the numbers. I don't have to be paralyzed by fear in this. And I think just that recognition for me that I was scared was very insightful. And, and I think it'll help us understand it as to when others are struggling with this decision whether not to get vaccinated, realize it's, it is fear and fear is real. But the facts really show that the risk-benefit ratio highly is skewed towards benefit here. Absolutely. I think about vaccines and safety in general, and I think to myself, what other chemical or medicine or, or even food could we give to 160 million Americans and see such few side effects? I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I mean, if we gave peanuts to 160 million Americans, and I literally mean peanuts, you'd probably have a lot more anaphylaxis than, than you know, yeah. these vaccines. So they do have to be incredibly safe to be FDA approved. And my hope is that FDA approval is just around the corner. I think it is. That, that also is taken up. That's going to take a required six months of safety data as opposed to the EUA was only two months. So they finally got that data in. And now remember, you know, when we first rolled these things out, logistics of the cold chain supply was a nightmare. 
So now the FDA is having to learn and understand all these protocols for manufacturing and cold chain supply and go through every single one with a fine tooth comb. And that's just going to take time. But, but they're, they're obviously moving as fast as they can. Hopefully we'll get an early fall here. I hope so too. One last question, Schaefer, before we close. In your opinion, based on all the data that we've both reviewed here, do you think it's safer to go get the COVID-19 vaccine or if you're otherwise young and healthy to risk your chance in, uh, and get infected with COVID-19? Well, there's no question in my mind, it's safer to get vaccinated. I don't have any qualms about it. Just told you, I told my pregnant sister to get vaccinated. My whole family is now vaccinated. My daughter, who's 13, is vaccinated. I, I don't, I wouldn't do that if I didn't think it was absolutely the best thing for them. I agree with you. I, you know, I, I think of this virus as such a, an incredibly infectious virus. And in the end, I say the end, but I mean, let's just say two, three years from now, all of us will have to have some level of immunity and you can get immunity one of two ways. And one way is with a vaccine. It's, you know, we, we know how safe it is. And, and the other is, is with actually getting COVID and, and recovering, hopefully. And while the rates, uh, their mortality rate and otherwise young and healthy adults is very low, there are some of these unknowns. And I think that kind of you've highlighted a few of these cases that you've seen in the hospital. So I'll leave everyone with that. And I wanted to Again, thanks, Schaefer, for joining us on this episode. So thanks, Schaefer. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Travis. Great job. Absolutely. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in to episode 19 of the Dayson Digest podcast. As a reminder, we post new podcast episodes every other Friday. So be on the lookout for the next episode on August 27th. Thanks again, Schaefer, for joining me on this episode and for sharing all of your insight on this issue. If you have any questions about the COVID-19 vaccine, please feel free to reach out to your Dayson liaison. And until next time, take care.